0: Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking part in this immersive listening experience. A meaningful existence is a moving
1: target that no matter how close will always be out of reach. We hope this message finds you with an outstretched hand. As we attempt to uncover complex truths, remember, life's toughest questions can be answered if we all just
0: focus on one thing. Being good people. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, I was joined by Dr. Tracy Valencourt. She holds the Canada Research Chair in School-Based Mental Health and Violence Prevention. She is also a professor at the University of Ottawa, and her main focus of research is bullying. In today's episode, expect to get a definition of what bullying is, why kids bully, some of the short and long-term effects of bullying, and how parents can go about dealing with their children, whether they are bullies or are getting bullied. Before we begin, if you are listening to this episode on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please leave the show a rating. It helps us out a ton. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You're very welcome. Before we get started, would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are, what's your name, what it is you do, um, things like that?
1: Okay, so uh, I'm Dr. Tracy Viancourt. I'm a tier one Canada research chair in school-based mental health and violence prevention at the University of Ottawa. I'm a professor of counseling psychology. I'm in uh, several different faculties and I primarily study bullying and mental health.
0: Awesome, I cannot wait to have this conversation, but before we get started, is there any, just to get to know you a bit better, personal hobbies or interests that you have that you'd like to share?
1: So I coach high-performance soccer. So I am the head coach of the U17 girls team for our province, for the Ontario team. And uh, I'm also part of the Canada Games coaching staff, have been in the past. And uh, yeah, so, I, and I coach in this this league called League One, which is the top women's league in in uh, Canada. So I'm a soccer coach. I used to be a soccer player. So I'm a professor, a soccer coach, a mom,
0: Very cool. That blows my mind. And I I played soccer my whole life, but I I mean, I never really got much past the high school bench, but I do play (laughs) soccer. And uh, I'm actually talking to a friend of mine next week who is currently a uh, graduate assistant, and he's coaching a soccer team uh, in the States somewhere. But that's sort of the path that he's going down. So that's very cool.
1: uh, I'll just say this too. So today, um, our women's team are playing their first game in the World Cup. Or Canadian women's team and several of the players on that team I've coached.
0: That's very cool. I it's feel like so I could cool. have a whole episode talking to you about just that probably. We should
1: talk about soccer one day. I love talking. Okay. About
0: soccer. I would love to. Okay. Uh, but bullying, bullying is something that I'm personally fascinated in. How did you first get involved with studying bullying?
1: So I studied bullying in um, grad school and nobody was really studying it then. There were a few people, there was like, um, a very prominent Scandinavian researcher named Dan Olvaeus who I'm sure if you've done some googling on the topic you, you would have seen his name come up quite a bit. Um, I was really interested in high status bullies so the popular mean kids that was uh, you know when you think about the movie Mean um, Girls that was basically my PhD dissertation and, um, and also it was around the time when Columbine took place and um, there was a lot of talk about the, the mean jocks and how, um, you know, these young disenfranchised murderers were uh, targeting people that had treated them poorly and it tended to be the school elite. So it kind of all came together that way. So I started very early and I've been studying it ever since, so since I was a grad student.
0: You said uh, there wasn't many people. Is that sort of the main reason why you wanted to look into it? Just because it was something that wasn't getting a lot of attention?
1: I was. So at the time there was this thing coming out where uh, researchers were starting to look at um, relational aggression. It was also called social or indirect aggression. And so they were really looking at how girls um, bullied a bit differently than boys. And so I was pretty keen on that research. And it kind of just all came together. I remember going to a conference early in grad school and they were talking about how popular kids were really, um, good citizens. Like they were, you know, they had it all put together. They were kind and they were pro-social and, um, and the like. And I was thinking, well, that, that doesn't sound true to my high school experience. The popular kids in our school were bullies. And so what occurred to me, um, after that conference was that we were talking about different things. They were talking about kids who were liked, and they were using the term popular. And kids in high school and in middle school were talking about popular kids, uh, meaning those that had influence and those that had high visibility. And not to like, maybe this is going to be a little bit mean of me, but I think part of the reason they were using the wrong term, scientists, was because I don't think they were in the popular group. And so yeah. <laughs> I think that they used a term that, a label I would never have used to describe these kids. I would have always used the term, um, kids that were really liked and then reserve popular for those that had high visibility and high influence. So anyhow, so it didn't, it just didn't fit. It didn't fit with my experiences in high school. And so I went about to do my my dissertation on that topic on high status bullies. And I was really curious to see um, how they maintain power, uh, why they were so influential and yet little shits in a lot of ways. So um, and what I found was that um, they there's like primarily two types of bullies, so there's obviously more, but I'll just make this a bit simple. So there's a stereotypical bully like Nelson from The Simpsons, and that's kind of who everybody was studying before, the guy who is um, disenfranchised and doesn't have a lot of assets and competencies and has really poor social skills and the like, and high on psychopathology. And then there's the mean, popular kids who have tons of assets and competencies and that's what affords them the power. So they're attractive and good athletes and come from wealthy families and that sort of thing. So basically what I found was that if you are high, you have high status and you have a lot of assets and competencies, you can basically bully with impunity. Whereas the other kids, the Nelson type profile where most people were thinking that represented the typical bully um, those kids were so different um, than the typical, like the more common bully, the popular bully, and their trajectory was very different. Um, anyhow, so all this to say, those kids, the Nelsons represented 10% of the of the bullies in my study, and the popular ones represented 90% of the kids in my study. And they bullied others at a rate that was four times higher. So basically, um, I used my good observation skills in high school of being in that popular group, although I wasn't a bully. And uh, I applied it to science when I was doing my PhD. And I showed it to be true.
0: When you say, could you define bullying and bullying behavior for me? Because I've heard in the past, just through some research that like this popular crowd group that you're talking about, anecdotally, this is the thing that I've also observed myself, but I've also read and heard that one of the characteristics of bullying behavior is that it is from a higher social status to a lower social status. Um, Is that, it doesn't sound like that's necessarily true. So how are we defining it? It is
1: true in a sense. So I know it's hard Uh to reconcile because I said that this Nelson group kind of in a sense didn't have a lot going for them. Mm -hmm. So um, bullying by definition is repeated aggression Um, directed at somebody in the context of a power imbalance, and it's intentional. But the Nelsons use um, aggression in a way that you and I wouldn't use it, in a sense. So, like, you can also gain power by just doing something that's really awful over and over again. So you're eliciting fear, um, right, from others, um, it doesn't mean that um, the peer group's going to like you. These kids are highly, highly marginalized. They're very, very disliked, um, but they still can bully others because their power comes from the fact that they um, are ugly in their use of aggression, in a sense. The other kids that that represents more typical kid who bullies um, has power that's already afforded to them, not through their aggressive means per se or their aggressive behavior, but by having a lot of assets and competencies that the peer group values. And then they're this melange of pro-social and antisocial. So they're not like completely corrupt. They have some redeeming features in terms of their behavior, but but at the end of the day, um, their power is derived probably originally from having assets and competencies. And then in turn, they abuse that power um, and treat their peers poorly. And that's how they maintain their status as well. So they achieve and maintain status through pro-social and aggressive means, whereas that other group that's low power um, achieves their bullying status by just doing it over and over and over again to people who Mm -hmm. they think are weaker than they are.
0: Okay. So like in a summary of it, it's almost like in any way from a social context, if you view others above you in certain aspect, whether that be fear or uh, capability. Sometimes there's like this in my head, there's a stereotypical, maybe becomes from a poor family, but like big, strong. Some may even say like, dumb kid, but like, everybody's scared of him. And he is mean to others, but also in certain ways. And when you say assets, that's things socially like attractiveness, um, charisma, confidence, being an athlete, not necessarily like I guess potentially it could be coming from like a wealthy family, but generally, yeah. maybe.
1: That's how I, when I, so I called it peer value characteristics. They're characteristics that the peer group values, and they tend to be um, asset based and, and also related to competencies. So, like you said, um, the competency would be having charisma, being confident, and that sort of thing, but also, or being funny. Funny is something that came up a lot in the kids that bully others. Um, the high status kids who bully others, but then they also tend to be good looking, come from a more affluent family, tend to be the the jocks of the school, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So you you got it right. But the thing is, I think people don't tend to understand, but if they thought about it, I think that it would be quite obvious that power is, there's a lot of fluidity. So like hierarchies are fluid in humans. So there's some that are clearly, clearly, clearly at the top. So, you know, when you think about um, politics you have, you vote for a president, that president leads your country, that sort of thing. But, um, within human interactions, maybe on, in one context, you have more power than I do, but in another context, I have more power than you do. So right now, like I have a little bit more, um, I, a lot more content knowledge on this topic. So that affords me a little bit more status or power, but, um, you are controlling what clips are going to get in to this podcast. You can make me sound really dumb and string this together in a certain way. And that affords you a little bit more power. So you have to always think about how these, it's in a sense like these social exchanges. And so um, the kid who is willing to fight really dirty might have even power over the most popular kid in the school, Um But it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to lead anybody. So the popular bullies that I studied were also perceived as being really high on leadership. And isn't that like sad that the elite of a school, the ones that kids think are good leaders or are the ones that they want to follow are also um, nefarious?
0: Yeah, it's like the with great power comes great responsibility sort of thing or just in order to do just and good things, you need, you know, there's a, it's a tool that you could use negatively. It seems like that seems to be a pretty common thing, theme that I've talked to many people about for various different topics, but it's cool that there's that similarity with this as well. It seems.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the most robust findings in experimental studies is the corrupting influence of power. So you can manipulate it in such a way where you afford somebody power and more often than not, um, they abuse their power. And we see it in all walks of life. Like you would think that um, somebody who works in a certain area that is lower um, status would not have any power, but if you need them to get you something, you're gonna see that you potentially can see the corrupting influence of power. And one of my favorite, favorite studies uh, was where they looked at the time it took people to vacate a parking spot. And it took people longer when somebody was waiting for that parking spot than when somebody wasn't. So it's almost like, you know, as Mm -hmm. soon as somebody wants the spot that I don't need anymore, I need to check all of my mirrors. I got to, you know, make sure my lip gloss is applied properly. Got to get my sunglasses out. Got to, you know, fiddle around here, there and everywhere. And then I'll leave the spot. Whereas if nobody's waiting for it, you know, you just zip out. So that like is a classic example of the corrupting influence of power.
0: That's funny. We were, I was just at the beach last week and we were going to this state park and we parked in this one spot that it would be easier to get to where we were going, but there was limited parking. we were literally like driving in circles. And like, we asked a person, Hey, you know, can we take your spot? And we followed them. They did exactly what you're saying, where they took forever to pull out. And it's <laughs> funny for me, like I've been in that situation. The college, um, parking deck is that it's, Hey, can I take your spot? And then they follow you. Right. And I'm like, get in the car, turn it on. Don't even buckle. Just like get out of the spot. And it's almost like a thing of don't be inconvenient.
1: Yeah. yeah. And obviously that speaks to individual differences, right? Like there'll be some people that are like you, and then there'll be some that do the ultimate safety check before they would exit. And they wouldn't have done that if somebody wasn't waiting for it. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Maybe that should be like the ultimate character test to like just put people in that test without telling them and see how they respond and it's like a it's a personality test.
1: It's it's so interesting too like to your point like um like testing who would do what and when. Like a lot of times people will tell me they would never ever abuse power and yet we can manipulate it in such a way where we can get them to do it. So I did this pretty famous study where we had women come into the lab and they thought they were having a discussion about how women get along with each other. And we had their conversation interrupted with a Confederate who was either dressed in a really sexy way or was dressed conservatively. So they were randomized to one condition or the other. And unbeknownst to them, we were recording them the whole time. And when she was dressed sexy and came and interrupted them, They were awful. Like they did the once overs, (laughs) the eye rolls. Sometimes they said something directly to her and in the other condition, they didn't even notice her, you know? Um, so there's a good example of people who would say they don't behave poorly, but as soon as we set up the condition for them to behave poorly, they did. In fact, everybody in that one sexy condition aggressed against our Confederate with the exception of two. Wow.
0: Wow. Very cool. That's, um, Yeah, that's whole like, I guess, human behavior thing of like, that's something I've been giving a lot of thought to recently. And we don't necessarily have to talk about this, but just like, it feels like to me, there's certain parts of my brain that just, I said something to somebody the other day, I'm 23, right? And like, there's parts of my brain that I catch myself acting like a 23 year old immature, like full of testosterone guy. And I'm like, Oh, that was like, don't do that. That was stupid. And maybe in like the same instance or the same.
1: Exactly.
0: Those things would happen. But it's funny.
1: It's a, it's like a, in psychology, we call it a person in context interaction. And so, um, I always give a lecture on, um, is aggression part of the human condition? And my, the answer to that is it, it, yes. Like, I think we all have a capacity to aggress against others. Bullying is a bit different because it goes on and on and on, right. And in the context of a power imbalance, but I do think that we all have the capacity to not be kind and, uh, we just have to Mm -hmm. set up the conditions and then what we do then is then we justify our egregious acts to make them more palatable. And we see that happening in bullying all the time. We call that moral disengagement. So you might say, ah, the reason I did that was because I was tired or, you know, whatever, like I was hungry, I was in a hurry. You kind of like justify why you were a jerk, but um, you never just say it's because of my poor character. Um, yeah. but we then see others who re- behave in a similar way as having some kind of character flaw. So we're really unforgiving of others and very forgiven of ourselves. And that, I think that's how we, um, I think this is why bullying persists. I think this is one of the main reasons is because of this cognitive mechanism.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. What we talked a bit about characteristics of bullying. What are some of the underlying causes for the reasons behind why people bullying? I would imagine like, this is a question that really fascinates me. It's like, I don't really see what's the evolutionary point of this sort of hierarchy power structure thing that happens.
1: Well, I mean, bullying affords you a lot of, uh, of things. So, um, there's a lot of research that supports that it's linked to, um, greater dating, um, opportunities, um, earlier sexual debut. Um, it has significance into the future in terms of, um, partnerships and the like, and it seems kind of like weird to say this because you would think that why would anybody want to be partnered up with a bully, but it's these high status bullies again. Right. Um, and they have a lot going on. Um, they have a lot of things that, um, others find attractive. So you can that, and then I think from an evolution perspective, like, um, you know, you would have accrued more resources by treating people Mm -hmm. poorly. Um, um, pe- picking on the weak and the like. Now, it, it's a fine line, though, because if you keep doing it and you keep um, accruing enemies, then you eventually the tide turns and you now have no support. So this is why I think the high-status bullies maintain status is because they're not just pure antisocial; they also have um, prosocial behavior. So sometimes they're nice to you and sometimes they're mean to you. Whereas that other group, that the low status bullies tend to not have any pro-social behavior and they're just awful to a lot of people and they are very, very disliked. So that other group is controversial. Some people like them, some people don't. It depends on how they just treated them. But that other group, nobody likes them.
0: Okay. And it's almost like a, I, when I use the term self-preservation, it seems like that's a term reserved for like, bottom of the barrel, social people, but it's almost like bullying facilitates more power in the structure. Obviously you said it like sort of rides this fine line. It totally makes sense to me that um, people who are bullies are more favorable in relationships because it's like, I'm now sharing your power because we're in this like cohesive unit, uh, which which is very cool. With bullying victim relationships, I know you said there's kind of like a fine line. I would imagine that that relationship with the reoccurring bullying sort of evolves over time. Uh, if it does, how, how does it change sort of as like a relationship, bully-victim relationship goes on?
1: Well, typically we have to intervene for it to change. So meaning like the teacher has to, you know, put a stop to it or the principal or there's some kind of intervention. Um, because in a lot of ways the person who's bullying um, doesn't really see their target as having a lot of redeemable um, redeeming qualities, sorry, and their their toxic behavior actually changes the way, at a neurological level, the way they perceive the person that they're bullying. So they tend to, in a sense, not see them as human as much because they've yeah, they've done this moral disengagement, um, and so they're impervious to the harms that they're causing, and they're impervious to the signs of distress and the like. So. Um, So we tend to have to intervene. What also happens is, and this is research that we've done and we've shown this to be true um, in our sample at least, um, but it's also been replicated by others, that um, the pathway is not from bully to victim. And that's what we used to think it would be. Like eventually, like I said, eventually people have had enough of you and then they turn on you. That sometimes happens for sure. But more often than not, people who are victims who are bullied become bullies over time because it's kind of like if you know if you can't beat them join them and so and that's problematic too and then and then we have this other group that occupies both roles so they're victims and they're bullies and that group is really really unwell in a lot of ways like in terms of um, psychosocial functioning they tend to have the worst outcomes Um, so they occupy both roles and sometimes it's more fluid than that, right? Like maybe I bully you, um, but I get bullied by somebody else. Or maybe I just bully exclusively, but I only pick on certain kids. Or maybe I run amok on everybody. Like, I mean, this is, there's so many ways that this could look. We tend to want to reduce things into the, these little bins where we say, uh, and I've done it in this discussion where I try to make things a bit more simple. But the truth of the matter is, it's not that simple.
0: Mm-hmm. It, there, that is a common thing that I think socially happens, right? Like this might be bullying in a certain context, but maybe it's not. Uh, a thing that may, you made me think of is if you join a fraternity. I wasn't in a fraternity when I was in college, right? But it's like you have that whole semester where you're just like eating shit off the floor from everybody else that's in the fraternity making, they're making you do whatever they want. You know, you drive them to class, you drive them around to parties. You, you literally have to do crazy stuff like eat a whole loaf of bread and then drink 30 beers at a party because you know, whatever, like crazy stuff. Right. And so, but when you are out of that semester, that first semester, when you join in, in a lot of people's head, it's like, okay, now it's my turn to do this to other people. And then you have, seven semesters of college where you have the opportunity to do that to other people. And I had roommates that did the same thing and they tried to explain it to me, but this was something that I just never, that would make me want to do it less. I would want to be like the nice guy to these people. And maybe that is a way for me to almost gain favor with this group of people is to like not be as harsh. Right. But, um, I I'm curious about that. Like in general, socially, it seems like we, whatever we go through, it's almost like we want to make other people experience it too.
1: Hundred percent. I mean, think about workplace bullying. And and in, in, when you think about a lot of times, um, I'll speak about women in power, um, you would think that we'd want to support the sisterhood in a sense, right? Like those that are coming up and make their lives easier. But in a lot of times, and I've heard a lot of women say this, and I've read a lot of research on this, I have a book coming out on this, um, where they think that it was tough for me, so I can't have it be easy for you. And then they also think about how, oh yeah, that that made me a better person, that, that toughened me up to a point where I could be a good leader. But that, that's such bullshit, because at the end of the day, um, leadership is not about oppressing, humiliating others. It's about getting the best from people. That's the leadership style we want. But for some reason, we're so attracted to autocratic leaders. Not everybody. There's certain a uh, segment of the population that's completely not attracted to autocratic leadership. I am definitely not. I'm appalled by the uh, by the uh, behavior of bullies. Um, but certainly, some are attracted to it. I mean, how many people voted for Donald Trump? He's like probably the most. I don't know, visible bully in the world, would you say? Mm -hmm. Like, how many, do you remember how many Americans voted for him? At least
0: half, at least half. Yeah,
1: And like, so like how many, like, how could that be tolerated? And yet it was, and he does bully. You can't argue that Donald Trump is not a bully. He absolutely is. Every expert on bullying will say that he's a bully. And yet a lot of people find that attractive. And this is the thing I think that, people um, have a hard time reconciling is that um, bullies have a whole consolation of people supporting them. And so you have the people who actually actively um, cheer them on or encourage them. You have the passive onlooker, but they're certainly not protesting it and they're not saying don't do it. Right. Um, And then you have those who work as a henchman, um, or henchman, um, who actually do a lot of the dirty work for the bully. And so bullying is a group process and there's a lot of people who occupy a lot of different roles. And then from the perspective of the person who's bullying, they think they look around and they think, oh, look at all the support I have. So they don't recognize that they're actually feared. They think they're respected and they actually confuse the two. Um, and then there are some that actually respect that type of leadership. And uh, that's, I think, where we have to understand, we have to have a better understanding of why this would be attractive to some people. Um, Like we like tough people. And in my studies, um, tough boys in particular, adolescent boys tended to be quite popular, not mean boys, although they were mean at times, but tough boys, they made it to the top.
0: And I wonder what's happening there because like, as I've gotten older, the definition of that to me has evolved so much, right? Like if you told me what is toughness when I was 13 years old, it would be very much in line probably with what we're talking about right now, Mm -hmm. where it's like this type of individual that uses his power structure to take advantage, get what he wants, uh, you know, but like now having gone through certain aspects of my life, this was kind of what you made me think of when you were just talking there of like, people who admire like the donald trump example right people who admire bullying and think that like going through this creates almost like an admirable leader in a certain way i think that the tough stuff that we all deal with as human beings outside of the social realm like losing a loved one or like pushing yourself to i've i've ran a couple of ultra marathons um personally and like that stuff to me is a has made me grow more than anything else I've ever done. Right. It's a personal, Mm -hmm. real tough challenge that I went through. But like, I look back on the few instances that I felt like people were bullying me or I was embarrassed of something that happened to me in a social situation. And like, by no means in my head, do I chalk that up to like making me a more resilient individual. Right.
1: Yeah. I I think we're talking about different things here. I, so when I'm talking about tough, I'm talking about, um, I'm not talking about the grit that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah,
1: like, yeah. You're talking about grit, I think. And I'm talking about, like, you know how, um, in a sense, like, the biker culture has is tough. They're yes. seen as, like, the kind of, you know, the kind of men who don't put up with any bullshit, that kind of thing. Like, these are the tough, they exist in adulthood and they exist in adolescence. But for some reason, adolescent boys are really attracted to it. You know, mm-hmm. Andrew Tate is wildly popular with boys and men around the world. And like, what's the allure you think?
0: A hundred percent. The same thing we're talking about toughness. And that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, as I've gotten older, that, that whole thing has, it's gone for me. Like when yeah. I think of it, like toughness, my definition is different than that. Like when I think of my grandfather, he's like this very even killed is slow to anger, you know, tries to do the right thing because it's the right thing. In my head, that's what, that's what toughness is, right? And so it seems like at some level there's a, there's a social definition that needs to be changed.
1: Oh, well, and I was just going to go to that. I was just going to say, like, ultimately it'd be nice if we didn't value people or we um, placed people in a higher social position who abuse others. I would love it if it was cool to care in a sense. And I know that sounds cheesy, but like really that's ultimately, it'd be great if we valued kindness over cruelty. And yet we have this thing in us, like, I don't know if it's a vestige from our past because the resources were were thin and we had to battle on a lot of fronts. But for some reason, this is in a lot of people. A lot of people value this. Um, The fact that you had that many people storm the Capitol on January 6th tells you there's something about this um, being part of the human condition.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm not I don't know where quite to place that either myself. Right. You know, you you more than anyone probably look at this stuff and I'm just it prompts the question of like, what is that sort of thing? Is that something that you look at at all?
1: I do. And I look at it from a variety of different perspectives. So like using experimental designs to try and like, in a sense, poke it out of people and see what happens. Um, looking at it longitudinally using developmental studies um, and also using it, like thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective. And I think that the evolutionary lens is where I kind of land mostly on this, that it served a function in our evolutionary past and it's still resides today. Mm-hmm. And I still think that you do accrue certain, certain um, benefits from being tough in certain contexts. Um, you know, I don't think that um, if you were in academia with a bunch of professors, being the tough guy is not going to get you too far or the tough woman um, being really smart um, will get you far. So I think there's probably a context of where it, it works and it doesn't work. But being tough um, as an athlete works, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Being tough as a coach seems to, people tend to like that. If um, I'm a coach, as I said, and you know, sometimes I've been criticized for being too kind and then I've also been criticized for being tough. So like, you know, these things are complicated.
0: Yeah. I think a good question to ask for that is like, you know, people, I would say, I would lump me and you together in this thinking of maybe there's not the um, survival or evolutionary or primal, whatever you want to call it, thing in us that really warrants that, that, that toughness that we're talking about to push us farther in society. And so you and I, and a lot of people, because of the society that we live in, have the time and space. So there's a percentage of people that sit down and think about, okay, what does it mean to do good, be kind, Mm -hmm. have virtue, and our thinking leads us to, oh, maybe we shouldn't, you know, jump on this natural inclination to act this way towards certain people. I don't know. I think that we need
1: to suppress it. Um, I've often talked about the difference between implicit power and explicit power, and explicit power is achieved forcefully by um, eliciting. Fear and compliance and submission and others. So that would be like your Donald Trump is full on explicit power and implicit power is achieved by having competencies and assets that the peer group values. So I often think about um, Barack Obama as having all implicit power. And then the bullies in high school are this mix of implicit and explicit power. So, you know, they have the the coercive behavior with certain people, but they also have the other side of them where they're charismatic and charming and attractive and that sort of thing. And I think that this blending is why is another reason why we have a hard time reducing bullying because it's hard to dissuade individuals to give up a good source of their power, right? I mean, what kids want most, they'll say they don't, but studies show that this is true. If like, if teenagers and middle schoolers were really honest with themselves, the thing they want most is to be the most popular kid in the school or to be in the popular group. And so like, how do you then say, okay, you can only the, you know, you have to give up this one part um, and then let the chips fall where they may. I don't know. I think that's a big ask and a lot of them don't want to do it.
0: Yeah. My initial reaction to that statement when you said it is just like, uh, I was a communications major in college. And so we talked a lot about theories and systems of whatever, persuasion, interpersonal communications, right? And like a lens that I've always looked at everything as not just with communication, but just life socially et cetera, is that the stuff that happens to us, like the skills we can acquire, like charisma and confidence, that's just a tool and it's neutral, right? There's, it's not good or bad, but it can be used for good or bad. And so maybe that's kind of what you're getting at of like, maybe it's on the parents, maybe it's on the teacher, but just explaining like, Hey, you're using this one, you know, quote unquote, good quality that you see it as for bad things. And this is how you can use it productively.
1: I, you know, I, I kind of understand what you're saying and I, I like where you're going because I think about Machiavellianism, which correlates mm-hmm. quite highly with bullying. And that's part of the dark triad, which is narcissism, psychopathy and Machiavellianism. And Machiavellianism, a good way of thinking about it is like, it's better to be feared than loved if you can't have both. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so I think like Machi people who are high in Machiavellianism are quite charming. But you could also use that charm to manipulate people, Mm -hmm. like, with nefarious intent. And so, exactly, like, it could be something that's quite positive, but it could also be used in a negative way.
0: Yeah, it's like those people socially fear indifference. I've heard that before because it's, like, uh, I've heard somebody say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference, right? Like, Mm. hate, it's two sides of the same coin, right? There's still a care there of, like, or or a thought. uh, uh, of, of the other individual that you have these feelings towards there, right? Indifference would be, it's essentially completely pulling away from that. So I see what you're saying.
1: And we talk about mattering. So like you kind of, the way you describe it sounds to me like mattering as well. Um, and ultimately that's what people want to feel like they matter to others. Mm -hmm. And when they don't, they tend to be, um, they have problems with depression and anxiety, which is what we've shown in our studies.
0: Yeah. What, what are some of the other long-term effects of bullying?
1: So the effects are in the immediate and in the long term, and they're basically the same list. So kids who and adolescents and even adults who are bullied tend to have um, more mental health difficulties and everything pulls out. So higher depression, higher anxiety, more eating disorders, um, um, you know, greater suicidality, that sort of thing. Um, We also see it linked to um, substance use and abuse. You know, a lot of times people will self-medicate if they're not treated well. Um, And that happens immediately. So when they're being bullied, but also can persist even after they're bullied up until like 40, 50 years after the fact. So there's studies that have followed individuals who were bullied in childhood, and then they look at how they're functioning in adulthood and they're still not doing well um, in adulthood. It also gets under the skin to confer biological risks. So that's the bulk of my work on bullying is on this high status part, but also on the neurobiology of bullying. So it's linked to changes to your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, which is your stress response system. Mm-hmm. So you either overproduce or underproduce cortisol, depending on how long you've been bullied. Um, it affects memory. It affects everything. It even it impacts um epigenetic processes so um, your genes can't change but the expression of your genes can change so a a gene could be activated or it could be silenced that's epigenetics it's been shown to have an effect on that Um, it has an effect on inflammation both in the immediate and in the long term there's a study that showed that the inflammation rates of kids who were bullied was high it was the highest across all different bullying roles um, in adulthood, it's incredibly stressful. So it, it affects your brain. It it affects your cardiovascular health. Um, it places you at greater risk even for death. So for more morbidity and mortality.
0: Have you ever looked at like any sort of, uh, genetic component in the sense of like a individual who was bullied, who never got it figured out having children?
1: Um, so there's, there's a lot of studies coming out on that and there's, um, there's a link and it's like, the genetic component's hard because we talk about heritability. So like you can kind of estimate um, how much of this is heritable. And um, so there is a heritability component to bullying, but then there's also an environmental component because if I was bullied my whole life and then let's just say there's an ambiguous social situation with my kid, um, maybe I'd be more likely to think that this is problematic because right away my radar is going off, right? Like right away I think, okay, I, I know what this is. I know where this is heading. Whereas if I wasn't bullied, maybe that ambiguous situation would be explained differently to my child. So it's, it's quite complicated and I know I keep saying it is, but I mean, human behavior is complicated. Um, my worry is that, um, is that it stays with people forever. Like I remember my next door neighbor Um, Margaret, who passed away a few years ago, and she was 88 years old at the time. And she was telling me with tears in her eyes about how when she was 12 years old, the girls in her class were mean to her. So even at the end of her life, she couldn't get past this. She lived a good life. um, And I remember telling her like, Margaret, those bitches are dead. Like you know, move on. It's, it's good. I got a t-shirt but, that says those yeah, yeah. bitches those are bitches dead. Those bitches are dead. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it was so salient and this is, I think people don't understand that it really sticks with you forever. It changes who you are. And I, and, in that point, because it changes who you are, it's going to change the way you parent.
0: Mm. Yeah. That, that's very interesting. I, I wrote this in a journal entry. I don't journal that often. I say that in, a journal ever like sporadically but i wrote this in a journal entry there's things that happen to you in life and there's things that happen as a result of the things that you choose and you just got to let that shit like the shit that happened to you that you like cringe when you think about when you're younger maybe it's like super traumatic right you got in some way you you know it's not as easy as just letting it go but figuring out a way to free yourself from that is huge for happiness and health
1: it really is. And what you described, I keep putting the uh, the psychological term on it, but it's rumination, right? And rumination mm-hmm. is not good for mental health. It's particularly problematic for depression and anxiety. And a lot of times people do relive these experiences. They relive these scripts in a sense. It becomes a script in their mind, um, not to diminish the experience because it was horrific or the experiences. But yeah, they they have a really hard time getting past it. And, um, so this is why we need to prevent it, right? We need to make sure it doesn't happen. And that's quite, um, an arduous task as well.
0: Yeah. And is there, I'm sure there's a number of ways to overcome this sort of thing, right? I imagine it's from the lens of like medication all the way to, I use the term holistic, but just like chatting with somebody, maybe a therapist, or I'm sure there's thousands of instances where we don't even know about because people have just overcome some of this stuff on their own, right? But is there any way you look at certain uh, certain ways of overcoming dealing with bullying or maybe still carrying some of that?
1: I think if you're still carrying with it, uh, carrying it, and you have the resources, then therapy would be the thing to do. So psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, something of the like, right? Um, I think that, I mean the evidence supports that that would be a good way to go to manage this because. We've shown this, and we published a study not too long ago that bullying is a form of trauma. So, if you were um, sexually maltreated as a child, or physically abused, or neglected, um, it would be an obvious thing to do to go and seek help if you know if the issues persist because of that poor treatment. But for some reason, we don't do that when it comes to bullying, and yet it's it's a it's a trauma as well. So, you know, getting help would would be something I would highly recommend.
0: Yeah. Have you ever done anything where you looked at, um, actual bullying, uh, victimization or cases and perceived bullying victimization? And I'll give you a good example of like, um, when I say this, I don't mean to discount my experiences at all. Like I know this is probably something that I, I, I tend to be like, uh, it wasn't that bad for me, you know, Mm -hmm. but I, I had a handful of bullying, uh, instances where I was bullied uh, throughout my life, and I think a large part of it too was worse in my head because I isolated myself socially from instances like that because they they occur to me right, and so um, I don't carry any of that with me at all. You know, like I feel very favorably towards myself, and I'm confident with myself socially, and I'm very happy with my life in general, right? But I'm curious if if there's a difference maybe between people that perceived they were bullied and people that were like actually severely bullied, if there's any sort of difference or if that thing, if it's the same.
1: It's going to be really, um, mucky in a way there's going to be a lot of differences. So for example, I can understand. So you, you sound resilient, right? So you faced adversity and you're doing well and you have to understand like why that could be the case. Like, is it that you have, um, a lot of social support, um, did you have, you seem to have a lot of assets and competencies. Your couch is so gorgeous and you've got good I wasn't always like this. I was the fat kid. Just wait.
0: <laughs> no, no. I was, people say I was never the good looking, you know, in shape guy. I was. I was the fat kid that played video games. No, no, so thank but, you for now, but now, but yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: now, now, yeah. now you have a nice couch, you have good glasses and you're good looking. So I'm just thinking like, you know, there's a lot of reasons why maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't ruminate and that that's a great thing if you don't ruminate, right? Um, maybe you had um, cousins that were really close to you or your family was really good or like, you know what I mean? There's so many different reasons why. The other thing we didn't talk about is there's biological risk. So we do studies looking at biological risk. Some people are more at risk of becoming depressed in the face of adversity than others, right? So all of these things factor in. I think that um, we need to consider that ultimately what matters for outcomes is the environment or the event as it's perceived rather than how it exists in so-called reality. So ultimately it doesn't matter what I think, um, if you were bullied or not, is if you think, and if you think it was severe and you can't get past it, then that's ultimately what's going to determine your outcomes. Um, but really this comes down to cognition. So ultimately the way you perceive the past, um, and the way you perceive the future influences your mental health. So, I mean, that's the thing we have to address.
0: Is it easier to be bullied now because of all of the means to bully, like social media, et cetera?
1: I think it's easier to be bullied um, online for sure. I mean, that obviously didn't exist. Um, A lot of times people think that online bullying is a a very distinct form of bullying, and really it's a spillover. I'm talking about adolescence. In adulthood it looks a Mm -hmm. bit different, but in adolescence and children it's really a spillover of what happens in schools. I do think, though, that – we were making good strides before the pandemic in terms of bullying and youth violence and the like. And since the pandemic, things have kind of um, been, de- not kind of, things have been derailed. So we're seeing rates, like I've, the rates of school violence in Canada are really, really high right now, higher than I've seen in, in a great many years. Um, in the United States, it's the same. And I think that that is a spillover effect of the incivility that we're seeing there's a lot of political incivility. There's a lot of tribalism. Um, and then social media is just a cesspool of the worst of the worst in a lot of ways. There's good things that happen there too, but a lot of people act like complete assholes online.
0: Yeah, I, this actually kind of prompts me to a question that I had is you recently shared some research on your – I stalked your Twitter page. Uh, and it was about the negative effects of the pandemic on mental health eating disorders and self-harm specifically, I believe, specifically with young girls too. And you've also shared there was a huge decline in math and reading scores among 13-year-old students between 2022 and 2023. It sounds like a pandemic seems like a big focal point of this. Um, Is there any issues, maybe this is even outside of bullying, that you see that underline some of the challenges that youth face today in general?
1: I think the pandemic was a major, I don't think, I know it was a major disruptor in the lives of children and youth worldwide. Um, I don't think we fully appreciated how problematic this was. So we were so worried about the virus and making sure that people didn't catch COVID and that people uh, lived that we kind of ignored things that would go hand in hand with lockdowns. And I'm not against lockdowns per se. Like I think at the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't have a, a vaccination, we weren't we didn't have vaccines, we didn't have a way to kind of keep this um, in check and keep it um, where it wasn't overtaking everybody in the healthcare system. We needed to put some pretty drastic measures in place, but we persisted. We kept keeping kids out of school. We canceled their soccer games. We did all of this. And now we're coming... Um, to, you know, to realizing that this was problematic in a lot of ways. But a lot of us, like myself, advocated throughout the pandemic that this is probably what was going to happen. So learning loss is profound. Screen time increased 52 percent during the pandemic. Physical activity decreased. I just saw a report, a study that was published in JAMA, where obesity rates went up in children during the pandemic. Well, if you don't move and you sit on your computer all day long, it's going to go up. And those things have implications for physical health and mental health, right? So like they, we kind of like picked on one thing and didn't recognize that it's nested within all of these other things that are correlated. And so um, some kids did better during the pandemic, for sure. Some stayed the same, but a whole lot didn't do very well. And I think we're going to be feeling this for generations to come.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And something that we've been talking about, and generally speaking, anytime I've spoken to anybody about social behavior, right? Just like genetics and environment and all this, there's so many variables that it's very hard to pinpoint exactly Exactly. one thing. And something that I'm a, I'm a fitness coach. Um, and something that I teach people is like, we can't think of our health and fitness in that way. Right? Like if I wanted to improve, a. I'll use performance for an example because you do, you coach soccer, right? If I'm trying to, if I'm working with the Canadian team, right, and I need their back squat to go up and their um, the vertical jump to go up and their acceleration to go up, I can't um, look at each one of those factors and focus on them individually, right? I need to realize that the metrics that I'm trying to improve and move forward come down to a couple of really basic foundational things as far as the nutrition that they're eating the amount of sleep that they're getting and the, the consistency of their workout slash training program. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it almost feels like socially I see the same thing where in order to be a more kind, loving, generous individual that treats other people well and has positive interactions with other people, it seems like pointing to living a good life as an individual, as far as making sure you maintain good quality health, you're moving your body, you're eating eating well, you are interacting with others in a positive way, like these very foundational things that you would probably put on a checklist of how to live a good life as a human being, make all of the other variables better socially, like lowering, bullying, kids mm-hmm. are learning more, things like that. Is that a fair thing to say?
1: I think that the foundation would be the need to belong is a fundamental human motivator. So Mm -hmm. if we always keep in mind that humans are social beings, that social ties are not just a luxury, they're essential for optimal development, then we're going to be in a good place. So if we always operate from that idea that, um, you know, with very, very, very few exceptions, people want um, to belong and they want people to think well of them, and they want to have friends, and uh, and then I think we'll be okay moving forward on a lot of other things. But to your point, it's interesting because a lot of times what people don't understand is that there's like a downstream effect, a cascading effect. So, if you work on, let's just say, improving their vertical jump so that they can head the ball better, that could then have an implication on how long they can run. You know what I mean? Because they're all inextricably linked. But we tend to just isolate one thing and we think, ah, you know, this is not going to have that bad of an effect on everything else. We can shut down schools. We can socially isolate kids and it's going to be okay. Like there's not going to be that big of an implication. And yet there is a big implication. It's like you've pulled a thread on a sweater and now the whole sweater is unraveled and you're just left with a ball of yarn. And I don't think we thought about that enough during the pandemic, but that said, the base of all of this is the need to belong.
0: Yeah. Very cool. I, you know, I struggle with this and something, I don't have any kids, obviously I'm 23, like I said, but I know a lot of people who listen to my show who I coach and our clients of mine have children that are young and probably maybe not experienced bullying yet, but, um, will probably experience bullying Are right, getting to the age where they're going to school and will be mm-hmm. entering these social structures. And so I guess my question is, how do you deal with that stuff? I know even sometimes like parents don't even know that their kids are in bullying instances, whether they're bullies themselves or are experiencing bullying. But is there any sort of framework as a parent, your parent, right, that you can deal with things that we can do to make sure that our kids are meeting that need of of belonging and feeling like they're seen etc
1: i think what we need to do is first of all be open-minded to the idea that our kids have the capacity to bully so remember i said i think it's part of the human condition so um oftentimes when we contact when the school board contacts a parent and says hey you know little ashley was bullying the parents nowadays their first reaction is there's no way she's yeah. such a good kid and they deny it and they gaslight the school. And yet little Ashley's like kicking her sister's butt every day at home. Like, you know, she this, she has this capacity. So I think just be open-minded. Like how do we then address it if we're just gonna be right away being defensive? Of course, it has nothing. Um, every kid can do it, so be open-minded. And if you're open-minded, we'll be in a better position. That said, I think that we need to monitor our kids more. And I don't mean like we read their um, dms or anything like that it's not like the old like sneaking into their room and reading their diary kind of thing but we should be asking and this is what the research s- supports we should be asking them like who are you hanging out with where are you going like um you know how have like high structure high support um one of the things that parents can do to help their kids socially is make sure their home is like the home that kids want to come to i'm not saying yeah. that you know you're Providing weed and beer to the the seventeen year olds in your in your kids class. I'm saying where you know you're not you're you know you're creating a safe space at your home um, and and the like and um, and this constantly asking them not to the point where it becomes like how's your day and then they're like fine but like asking them about. Who are their friends? How are they getting along with their friends? Those sorts of things. So we ask them about a lot of things. We ask them how they're doing at school. We ask them how their soccer practice went. We ask them about everything, but we tend to not ask them about their peer relationships. And we should be asking them about that because then we can kind of get a sense of if something's going wrong. And if it is, then I would work with the school very carefully, uh, very closely to make sure that this gets addressed.
0: It seems like in a way, too, you're setting an example of like how to be a good person is inquiring about other people's well-being.
1: hundred percent. Right. Exactly. Did
0: you say high structure, high support? Is that the term you used? Yeah,
1: that's what I. So so studies show. Um, and this is like the best outcomes for parenting. So if you look at parenting styles, parents who have high structure, so they have an expectation mm-hmm. like um, so, you know, you have some say in what we're going to do. You can pick between three things. But I'm not going to let you just, you know, run amok in our family and decide anything. Um, And then high support where I'm going to care for you, too. I'm going to love you and I'm going to, um, you know, treat you like you matter and the like. I'm watching this show. I just have to say this because have you watched uh, the uh, The Righteous Gemstones? I have not. Okay, you have to watch it. I'm sure this will get cut out of your podcast, but it's so funny. But the adult children are assholes, complete shitheads to their dad. And I just think, like, it's a classic permissive parenting style. You can't, you have to have structure and support.
0: Yeah. And, that, and the schools
1: right- that do that too have lower bullying rates, by the way.
0: Okay. You say the show is called Righteous Gemstones?
1: Yes, it's on um, HBO and it's so good.
0: (laughs) Um, So you saying that, I've always said this, I think I've actually said it on this podcast before. My parents, I've never had a term for that, but like my parents, I always described it as like my dad and mom were strict with my expectations. Um, And there was like a high standard for me in terms of what was supposed to be accomplished. Like I was just supposed to get decent grades and like it wasn't even beyond that right like if i was trying hard and i got a c they would be fine yeah. and they always told me that right and so um and i always said they were they were strict but they also let me do whatever i wanted which like doesn't really make sense right but i had a lot of freedom and if i broke that trust i sort of lost it for a while right and so the high structure high support is a very cool articulate way to put something that i've always felt that i had for my parents and i'm very fortunate that i had that but i've never had really words to put it uh to put to it
1: and the 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 developmental outcomes are best for kids who are growing up in families that have high structure and high support and the uh, student outcomes are best in students that are in classrooms that have high structure and high support so what we tend to do is where we go with only structure which is my way or the highway you do it because I told you to do it, that sort of thing, autocratic leadership. Or we go with only support where it says, okay, baby, you can do whatever you want, right? No accountability. And both of those kids, like growing up, those kids growing up in those types of family tend to not do so well. It's the ones that have, there's accountability, but there's also love.
0: Very cool. I Something I'm really curious to ask you this question. We've asked everybody on the show, um, we've talked a lot about, you know, social structures and being kind and making others feel seen and heard. It's always interesting when I ask researchers this question, you are the most normal one I feel like that I've talked to. That's not like (laughs) hyper nerd about the thing that they do in like a very, you know, you know, the type that we're talking about, right? I do. Um,
1: They're my colleagues. (laughs) Yeah. The
0: question is what, what to you is a, is a good person? What does it mean for you to be a good person?
1: I think a good person is somebody who listens Somebody who makes other people feel, I keep going back to that they matter. Um, I think a lot of people don't listen. They really don't. I think that somebody who has unconditional positive regard, somebody who gives somebody the benefit of the doubt, I think we're quick to make um, snap decisions on who we think they are or what their motivation is. And we really don't know. So I'm always about giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. And my dad always talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness is important, he says. Mm. I'm um, less forgiving than he is, <laughs> yeah. but I'm working on it.
0: Cool. Uh, something you made me think there was—it's um, a great quote. I don't even know who said it, but it's: "We judge others by, or we judge ourselves by our intentions, and others by their actions." And I think about that all the time, right? Just like what you're talking it's about. It's called the fundamental
1: attribution error. What you just described. Exactly. And that's what we were talking about. Like in an ambiguous situation, um, like it's about our attributions and we make it's it's all of these things mixed up, mixed in, including moral disengagement. So we're pretty forgiving of ourselves. But for others, if they do something, they're a jerk. We would never say they were a jerk because Mm. they just are. It becomes an entity.
0: You really helped me out by giving me these psychological terms to the things that I've felt in my heart. But I'm glad that there's.
1: Like, I have some nerdiness in me, too, right? Like, you know, I love my terms if you haven't noticed.
0: (laughs) I keep labeling everything. I think it helps me. And one of the things that I'm finding with this podcast in general is talking to people like you who are very well researched and knowledge in certain aspects. It really helps me create a framework of you know, there's feelings that I have and know true, know to be true about, you know, the human condition, what have you and knowing what to call it and sort of giving it a name. It lets me put it on the shelf with all the other stuff that I know. Right. And it just, mm-hmm. I can almost push it out of my mind right now. I can focus on learning something else. And so it's very cool to have the opportunity to do that.
1: Well, I'm glad I could help.
0: Uh, Tracy, is there anything else that you would like to add? This has been an awesome conversation.
1: No, I think we kind of covered it. I mean, I think I just want people to appreciate that it's and I've said it and I keep saying that it really is complicated and it's going to be complicated. Um, we talked about even just power structures and how they're fluid. And and if so, and then you add on that individual differences on personality, um, context differences, genetics, all of that, like it, it makes it Almost sometimes impossible to study, and yet we're coming up with some pretty concrete evidence and supporting these complicated um, interactions. So I just want people to keep that in mind. And also, I think my big thing is always giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. Like, moving forward, that's going to be important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been awesome having you on. I will definitely keep in touch with you. Let's do another one sometime about soccer because I would love to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Go Canada.
0: Thank you very much for doing this. This was a very cool conversation. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Good People. If you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please give the show a rating. It helps us out a ton. If you really enjoyed the show, please share it with someone you love, perhaps your grandma.
1: We'll see you next time.